It's been a really exciting year. It's, some of the things I've done have been very dangerous. Some of them have been um, very dramatic. And, and, and also, we've got some fantastic evidence as well. So I, I think it's been a good year for me, yeah? If I look back, I think it's an A1. Ladies and gentlemen, And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. I am going to be sounding a little bit funky here at the beginning of the show. I'm sure you've noticed it by now. If not, you'll be noticing it as you hear more from me throughout the introduction and the outro part of the program. We had a meltdown of epic proportions here at BOA HQ this past week. The short version of it is that I'm a moron, pretty much, and I spilled coke on the recording equipment that we've used to tape the program for the last five years. I went out, got some new recording equipment. I'm not thrilled with it at all, and I've already taken steps to get back to where we were before the big coke spill. I've almost got my hands on a new version of the recording equipment that we have been using for BOA Audio the last five years. So once I can procure that, things will definitely be back to normal here on BOA Audio. So for now, I apologize that things sound a little weird here in the intro. Don't worry, the interview was taped with the old equipment, so that's all good. And I promise we will be back to normal within the next few weeks. Thank you for your patience. Let's rock on. This week on the program, we are welcoming back a good friend of the show, somebody that I had a blast talking to last year on BOA Audio Season 4. It is Extreme Explorer Adam Davies, and he is fresh off a really remarkable 2009. He had two big expeditions this past year, a trip to Nepal searching for the Yeti, and then he went back to Sumatra for the fifth time looking for evidence of the Orang Pendek. Think about that for a minute, folks. Take a step back. Adam Davies traveling to Nepal, scaling the Himalayas, and then to Sumatra in the jungles. I mean, this is some crazy stuff. Adam Davies really is one of the most daring researchers in all of cryptozoology, and really one of the coolest guys in esoterica. I really enjoy talking to him. Every time we sit down for a conversation, we have quite a few laughs, and I think you're going to notice that here in this week's edition of the program. Here's the rundown on what we're going to be talking about. First, we'll cover the trip to Nepal, scaling the Himalayas, looking for the abominable snowman, also known as the Yeti. We'll cover the perilous conditions of the Himalayan trip, which was showcased as a two-hour Monster Quest special this past fall. We'll get into the responsibilities of leading such a massive expedition. There were 30-plus people on this trip up the Himalayas, all under the leadership of Adam Davies. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in charge of that many people on a dangerous mountainside. 
but Adam Davies was, and he talks about that whole experience as well. We'll find out how the trip changed Adam's views on the Yeti, and we'll get a bunch of behind-the-scenes notes on the trip and the special. So for anybody who saw that two-hour Monster Quest Abominable Snowman special, you definitely saw Adam Davies all over the thing, and now you're going to get a lot of perspective from Adam on what was really going on during that amazing expedition. Following that, we're going to cover his fall 2009 journey to Sumatra in search of the Orang Pendek. We'll find out how the trip came about, and he's going to share the breathtaking story of the Orang Pendek sighting that happened to two members of his team. Truly riveting stuff there, and we'll muse about the Sumatran culture in relation to the mystery cryptid. What would happen to somebody who went down to Sumatra and took out the Orang Pendek? Are they in big trouble? You're going to find out when we talk to Adam Davies about all that. And, of course, tons and tons more. It's fast, it's loose, it's totally captivating stuff, as you really get a boots-on-the-ground perspective from Adam Davies, who is traveling all over the world looking for these mystery cryptids. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Adam Davies, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Adam Davies has tracked so-called mystery creatures all over the globe. His adventures include being shot at in the Congo whilst looking for the Makele Membe, the Congo dinosaur, and being arrested by the Mongolian army as a spy while hunting the fabled Death Worm. Adam sincerely believes that some, but not all, of these fabled creatures exist, and embarks on field research in order to substantiate this. He's also had some fantastic successes, with scientists confirming his finds as remarkable and astonishing, in the case of both the Sumatran Yeti and Norway's Nessie. Remarkably to date, Adam's expeditions have been entirely self-funded. He has been featured on a number of enjoyable documentaries, including Russian Bigfoot on the National Geographic Channel, and The Real Hobbit, as well as China's Wild Man on History Channel's Monster Quest series, and the two-hour Monster Quest special covering the Abominable Snowman. Adam would love to pursue his passion full-time, but at present works as a civil servant in Manchester, UK. His website is www.extreme-expeditions.com. All one word with a hyphen in the middle, my friends. Extreme-expeditions.com. Check it out. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 18th, 2009. Adam Davies, talking about his extreme expeditions of 2009 on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio, bringing back an old friend of the show. And in the years since we talked, he has been up to some amazing stuff, and I'm really excited to have him back here on the show to get an update on what he has been doing. The guest here is Adam Davies, world traveler, monster hunter extraordinaire. He really is uh, braving the elements all around the world looking for these mysterious cryptids, especially the ones that are on the peripheral of cryptozoology. And in the last year, he went over to Nepal, into the Himalayas, to look for the Yeti. And then just recently, about uh, maybe two months ago, he was over in Sumatra, looking for the Orang Pendek, as well as uh, some other strange creatures like horned snakes and golden cats. As I said, he's an amazing world traveler. And I also I should point out that his trip last January to the Himalayas 
was turned into a two-hour Monster Quest episode. I think it was the season finale of Monster Quest. I had a chance to sit down and watch it last night and really enjoyed it. We're going to be talking a lot about that and a lot about both expeditions here. So he's been up to quite a bit since he last appeared on BOA Audio, and I'm excited to uh, bring the updates to the folks here who are listening. Adam Davies, welcome back to BOA Audio. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks very much, Tim. It's a real pleasure to be back. I love it. Now, like I said, I, wow, you've just been up to all kinds of stuff since the last time we talked. It sounds like things are really sort of uh, picking up a little bit for you here as far as doing these expeditions. Yeah, I mean, they're really increasing in, in intensity. And and with it, you know, I, I'm, I feel like I'm getting closer and closer and, and getting more and more evidence of cryptids all over the world. So it's been a really exciting year. It's, some of the things I've done have been very dangerous. Some of them have been um, very dramatic and, and, and also We've got some fantastic evidence as well, so I, I think it's been a good year for me, yeah? If I look back, I think it's an A1. Oh, yeah, absolutely, dude. Uh, Nepal and the Himalayas and Sumatra in one year, I mean, that's pretty awesome, especially having read uh, Extreme Expeditions, you know, and, and learning about all the preparation time, and sometimes, you know, these trips don't go off as well as you'd hoped. So to get two of these great expeditions in the books in one year really is quite quite an achievement. You should definitely be proud of yourself for, for pulling that off. Thanks very much, Mary. I mean, it takes, I mean, as you say, even like the Mars trip, that's like six months of planning. That was completely funded by myself with the other guys on the team. And, and you know, we're doing it on a shoestring. I cannot say to you, you know, as we left Singapore, I was literally down to my last 20 books. That was wow. it. You know, it was it was very, very close. But if I didn't go out and do these things, then um, I'd never, I'd never rest because I know that some of these things in some areas definitely exist, and I feel like it's my vocation to try and prove them. Exactly. Yeah. Now I presume you've seen the Monster Quest episode, right? Do they show it in the UK? I've seen, I've seen. No, they haven't shown it in the UK yet. I've seen bits of it, but they're sending me the whole reel. I'm not allowed to, to for legal reasons, which I'm not completely okay with. I'm not allowed to see the whole thing until it goes out in America. So it's coming to me in the next two days. Obviously, I've seen clips of it because I've talked about the production, but um, I, I've not seen the whole thing yet. So um, I'm looking forward to it just, just as much as you were. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd had it on my TiVo for a while, but I was I knew we'd be talking. So I was like, hmm. well, I'll wait till we have these things firmly set up so I can watch it the night before or the day before or whatever. So this stuff's fresh in my mind. Well, hopefully, uh, well, chances are most 90% of the stuff I'm going to talk to you about you're aware of from the oh, yeah. uh, expedition. So I guess we'll, st- we'll go chronologically. So we'll start with the Nepalese trip and, and you know, your journey into the Himalayas. Uh, now, that was back in January of '09, right? I guess give a little thumbnail description for people of, you know, what the trip was all about so we can kind of catch them up to speed, and then, and then we'll dig into it. Well, to, to, to cut a long story short, basically um, there is a, a Japanese uh, mountaineer called Yagihara, uh, Mr. Yagihara, and he had sent out an expedition. He spent some time in Nepal. He's one of the he's Japanese Olympic Committee. He's, he's one of the top mountaineers in the world. Now, he had spent a, a number of years in Nepal. When he was in Nepal, um, his team had, had found what seemed to be prints of a creature at altitude, which seemed to match prints of, a, of the abominable snowman, the, the, the so-called Yeti. And these were consistent with the same sort of prints that had been in famous photographs from the 1950s, where prints had been seen in the snow and they couldn't identify what it was. So, um, with that in mind, and he'd found them in, in the October, we began planning a potential uh, expedition to that area. 
it took a, it, again it took a lot of work because the the area where he was going in that part of Nepal was so um, remote that it probably would have taken two weeks to track in from the nearest road yeah. so what, what I suggested was that we used helicopters to shorten the time and get right up there so we, we flew in by helicopter to the nearest village and then began trekking up at altitude to the places where he'd seen them and the trek itself was was very very perilous it was really um, it was as we were crossing we were crossing in January as you said on um, on basically ice sheets oh, um, I, I mean and I think you you know on, uh, it's true to say sometimes when 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 films say oh you know so and so nearly died you sort of think oh yeah that's bull yeah you've just done it for the, for the film but people really nearly did die there was one particular ice floe we were crossing on the way in and if you slept, you were dead. And the thing that I worked out, which probably doesn't translate properly in the film, but I want you to imagine this now. If you slept, because of the, because of the angle of the ledge, you would have had one minute, I worked out, knowing that you were going to your certain death. Now, if you and your listeners close your eyes and count to a minute, that's a long time to realize you're going to die. And there was no purchase. There was nothing you could have done. Ice axes, whatever. It was solid ice. You were going down, man, and that was it. You were dead. Uh, and even when we got up um, to, to the place, myself, Yagihara, and the cameraman, Jeff, I mean, they're, they're awesome mountaineers. They, they, I mean, Jeff was the first person to climb Everest twice in a week. And, and I went up there with MB, the Chirpa, and the place where we stopped filming, so the place where you see where we think there might be prints, uh, and obviously the, the, that, those particular ones don't turn out to be, three people had died in that vicinity. Wow. Um, I mean, one had died of, of altitude, I think two had died of altitude sickness, and one had died in an avalanche. And the day after we left, um, there was an avalanche right at the spot where we had stood, and we would have been dead. Holy so, shit. Yeah, it was really that intense. And we saw it because Jeff, I mean, I'm, I'm experienced in, in jungles and deserts, as you know, Tim. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm not um, a high-scale mountaineer. I've never done that sort of thing before. So it was, it was pushing the fold for me personally. You know, you're feeling it as you go up altitude and you roped up. And I remember thinking, shit, how am I going to get down from here? Never mind getting up, you know. <laughs> it was like looking down thinking, oh, no, right, I've got these, like, I've got these crappy boots on. <laughs> and everybody else has got these crampon gear. How am I going to get down but but it, it, you know i cannot i cannot emphasize enough that it, it really was that bad it was so bad that the first helicopter that was due to come in and take us off the mountain refused to land because it was too dangerous for him and it was like yeah well it's too dangerous for you buddy we're the poor subs you've got to go back and do the trek down that down the ice ridge so it was very very intense very very intense but I came back thinking that um, I was pleased I did it, definitely pleased, A, because it's a rush, and, you know, I'm a moth to the flame about those sort of things, I freely admit that, and you know you've read my book, so you know that. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but secondly, I did, I did actually come back thinking, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure now that in Nepal, the Yeti does exist. So I was satisfied that it did. So it was worthwhile on a personal level and worthwhile on a cryptozoological level as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, and to speak to the perilousness of the trip uh, during the special at one point. I don't know if you've seen this clip yet, but the Sherpa is telling you like all of a sudden he says something like, you know, this next part here, you fall, you die. Yeah. That's like essentially what he said in broken English. And then you, you like sort of reiterate it to everybody on the trip. You're like, listen, uh, 
you know, if we fall here, we're done. You're, you're, you're going to die. It's like... And that well, was it. That was it. And he was a great... One of the things that was, was off camera that I'll share with you, he was a really good guy, yeah, and he has this very calming influence. So when you're on the, on, on the really dangerous bits, he's going... You know, don't worry, I'm with you, you'll be okay, you guys don't worry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's like this, you'll be okay, just relax. And he starts speaking in these slow, calming tones, yeah, so his <laughs> voice changes. He's like, you stay with me, Mr. Adam, you will be okay, you will relax, yeah? So he's like that. Anyway, on the way back, he, he, he slips himself, right? He slips, and I grabbed his basket, which is the back of it, was the back of him, to stop him from falling, yeah? Oh, wow. And he would have died, yeah? So I turned around and said, and B, you will be okay. Mr. Adam is with you. You relax. And he's like, I'm going to have to tell my family and friends now. I was saved by you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, no, it was like that. And it was like that all the time, you know. It was that intense. Um, and I was really, I, I, one of my proudest, one of the proudest moments, I think, of my life was when um, Yagihara, who was an enormous, uh, enormously great mountaineer who I really respect, he said to me, thank you very much for helping me on the mountain. And I didn't really help him, but what he was trying to do was pay me a compliment because I'd showed guts. Um, and and that, was, that was the Japanese custom. So I was pleased that I didn't his respect on the mountain because it was damn hard to do that, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was surprised, too, watching the special that uh, they said, obviously, you were the expedition leader and that there were, like, 30 people on the, on the expedition. I mean, that's a lot of pressure and responsibility to have in that kind of situation, too, you know? I don't know if some dude had fallen to his death, I mean, that's the kind of thing that would probably haunt you for the rest of your life because you were, you know, the expedition leader and, and, you know, some dude fell or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, it happens on all my expeditions. Um, you know, in Sumatra, the same. Um, any, and it can be the smallest thing to translate it out. For example, in Sumatra, when we were in the jungle, if someone had broken their ankle in, in somewhere, one of the particular places, so it doesn't seem particularly serious injury if you're into U.S., uh, or, or Britain, you can get help. There it could be fatal. Oh, um, wow. uh, and, and it can be that intense because how it's going to be extremely difficult to get somebody out. I'll give you an amusing aside because I know we're quite intense. When I, was, when I was in Sumatra in 2004, one of the big problems in Sumatra is man-eating tigers. A tiger killed three people this year, for example. Oh, wow. and I, was with the, I was with my friend Andy Sanderson. Now, in the middle of the camp at night, you, you, you kind of build a base camp and it's pitch black at night, as you can imagine. Now, the place where we went, where we go to the loo, um, it was through a load of very sharp rattan vines. So if you can imagine, say, the camp's on one side and there's like 100 yards of rattan vines on the other side. Okay, so what he does is he wakes up in the middle of the night, been eating these dodgy fish heads for like several weeks. <laughs> he says, you know, that was it. And he says to me, he says to me, Ad, 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 Ad. He wakes me up in the middle of the night and says, yeah, Andy, what is it? What is it? He says, I need to go for crap. I need to go for crap. Uh, and there's just, in those sort of situations, you know, there's no putting it off. You know, there's no way until the morning you've eaten fish head stew for weeks. Yeah, that's it. So I said, okay, mate. I said, what I'll do is I'll shine a light as you go through the rattans, yeah. So, woke up, shine the light. Anyway, he gets to the other side of the rattans. He, put, he pulls down his pants, and at that moment, at that moment, he's like, he hears this tiger, and he's going, Rawr! 
<laughs> he pulls his pants and runs back through the thing. He's like, cuts his head all on all these rats. He's like this. <laughs> like this. He, was, he, said, he said, I thought that was going to be my moment. He said, I thought I was going to be like eating in the jungle at that moment while I'm taking a crap. And I said, look at, look on the bright side, mate, because I would have had to phone up and tell your mum you'd been killed. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mrs. Sanderson, he died very bravely. He fought off this tiger, and if it wasn't for him, you know. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I'm telling you a frivolous story because because those are the reality of the situation. But, yeah, because I lead these expeditions, and, and aside from the ones I, I mean, I do obviously do ones for Monster Quest, but aside from that, I do, I do them on my own. And um, there's not a minute goes by when my number one job has to be the survival of the team. My responsibility, ultimately, is to get everybody home. And in those sort of situations, especially especially with guys that know from the they're hanging off my every word. So every decision made you know, on some of these expeditions is my decision. When we eat, where we go, what we do. Less, less so with the monster questing because it's more communal because I'm doing it for a film. But, but on most of the expeditions I, I've done, Everything is ultimately decided by me, and that means your mind is constantly worrying about these things. You're the first person who's ever asked me about that, about those sort of things, and, and 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 it's a very good question because it is very very intense. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I was impressed with the way you handle it because uh, even though you know from the interviews that we've done now, you're such an easygoing guy, and we laugh a lot and stuff. But when I was watching the thing, and there were you know there were a few laughs on the Monster Quest special, but you were all business, like as far as the expedition goes. I was I was had that in my notes because uh, at one point you guys were kind of all sitting around looking at the maps and stuff, and then you're like, all right, let's go, let's get a move on, you know, because we got to get there in time before uh, it gets dark or something like that. And I was just like, you know, this guy's intense, but he's also an easygoing guy, so it was cool. Yeah, well, well, it's good to have a good rapport. I mean, what I want to do is make sure everybody enjoys themselves when they're on the trip. But in terms of working hard, again, you, you're right, they picked it up. When I'm out there, because I believe, not everywhere I go, but most of the places I've been when I've, when I've been on the scent of something, so I think there's something that, that really is substantial, I want to do my utmost to find it, so I bust the gut. So, you know, normally I'm the last one to go to bed. Um, and I would plan things with the guides. And then the first one up in the morning to get everybody up to get going. And, you know, throughout the day I'm making lots of decisions. I never stop. I'll probably work 18-hour days when I'm out there. Wow. Um, maximizing everything I do. Even if we're making a film and I'm not on film, I'll be, I'll be writing my notes or thinking about something. If we aren't um, doing a film, then I'll be organizing a lot of the supplies, organizing the optimum tracking areas. There's so much for me to do. But... You know, Tim, it's easy if you love what you're doing. Yeah, if it, and because I love what I'm doing, I'm doing. I don't see it in the same way as, as work. It's not like a nine to five in that sort of sense. I'm really lucky that when I do these things, because I have such belief for it, um, it carries me through, and I wouldn't change it. Absolutely, yeah, and it's such an opportunity too that you need to make the most out of that time Absolutely. that you're there. Now, one lighthearted thing I want to ask you about here, uh, as I was watching the special. When you hear Himalayas, you think it's like really cold or something, but I got the impression that it was really actually kind of hot as you were trekking up there because the primate expert dude was like running around without a shirt on for like the whole first half of the special. And I was like, what's going on with this guy? Put a shirt on, dude. Don't you know you're being filmed? Kind of <laughs> taken aback by that. So yeah. and then later he's showing you uh, a piece of like a, of like a fruit or something and talking about how, you know, the primates eat, but they leave behind parts of the food so you can kind of tell you know, that there were primates there because they only take certain parts of the food and leave certain other parts behind. And while he's showing you all this, he's like barefoot. And I was like, Jesus, this guy's crazy. You know, <laughs> what are you doing running around barefoot in the Himalayas? You're going to get hurt. 
So well, I, I think <laughs> that's just I, I, think, I, think, I had. No, no, I think that's right. I, th- I think it wasn't seasonably hot on the climb up to the high peaks. Obviously, when we got up to, to the highest altitude, what happened was the, the primate specialist, Ian, we split into two teams to, again to maximize our chances. So Ian went to the lower area, um, and he went up to an altitude of about 8,000 feet uh, and below, um, looking in the forested areas, which, which is most likely to sustain a population of, of apes for any particular time. Because Yagihara had found the prints at higher altitude, we obviously went up there. And, and as you know, um, there was snow there, so it was extremely cold. Yeah. Um, it's sub-zero up there at the highest levels. And Ian didn't go up to that, that, that level. He stayed on the lower area. Um, there's no way you could have worn no shirt in the snow unless you were completely <laughs> mad, you know. <laughs> I would have done it for a bet. Maybe if you'd offered me a bottle of whiskey or something, you know, I might have been persuaded for a couple of hours. But um, I, don't think, uh, I don't think it was sustainable up there, not at altitude. He, he spent most of his time at the lower level, and that was the right thing to do because, again, splitting up the team, we've got to maximize our chances. We've only got a short time because we're on, obviously on a film and, and, it's limit, and you know, we're limited how much money we can spend. So we do the, mo- the best we can with the resources we've got in any situation. And, um, and I wanted him to stay down there, and he was keen to do that. So he, I showed him how to set up the camera traps, and I got him to try and scout for the best locations there. So that's why he's doing that. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, no, he, he, he liked running around without a shirt, and that was cool by me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I thought it was just kind of like... It stood out like a sore thumb as I was watching. <laughs> I was like, "What the hell is this guy doing here? He's intense. He's a little, he's a little touched in the head, I think." But he, he was cool. He was yeah, if he'd gone up there, if he'd gone up, if he'd gone up at the top, um, he would have known about it. But, but you know, I, we had um, we had the winter gear and the winter clothing and all of that lot for that. We, I, I'd gone and bought myself like the like some sort of mountain North Face Parker thing or whatever it was that was like two hundred quid, so that I could I could wander around in the snow without freezing my nuts off. I know well, that um, must. Be, that must be like one of the weird parts about the expedition too, because it sounds like you know on the way up it starts out really hot, but then it gets fucking super cold, like dangerously cold. So it's like such extremes in the differences between the temperatures. Oh yeah, I mean it was amazing. I mean on the ascent. So if, if we're leaving in in um, and that team about eight thousand feet. On the ascent up to base camp, between 8,000 and 11,000 feet, you're getting down to sub-zero. So within a day, you're going from um, it being boiling hot, and we bought some oranges off a vendor because we were dehydrated as we were trekking through, to it being absolutely freezing, and you're tramping through, through snow. And, it, and it, really, it really was that quick. And, and all of a sudden, you're walking along and you're thinking, oh, shit, my, uh, my cold weather gear is, is with that Sherpa who's like quarter of a mile away. <laughs> Better keep moving. <laughs> and it was like that, yeah. It was, it was really like that. It changed so quickly. So you're right to pick that up because that's exactly what happened. One other cool part of the special was, uh, and I don't know if you were in the area when the guy did this, but uh, the guy actually who did the balloon, he tried wearing the backpack that had the, the helium tank in it, and he, like, almost fell over. He said he could yeah. barely walk 100 yards probably with it on his back. Yeah. And, I mean, that just speaks to the strength of, of these dudes you guys had with you. I guess it's part of their culture, so maybe they're more used to, uh, you know, traveling in that kind of style. But it was like, wow, these guys must be amazing that you guys have with you who can carry all this equipment and everything. Oh, awesome respect to them. And you know what? That guy who was carrying that helium thing, there was one guy who spent most of his time carrying it. You know what he was wearing going up the mountains? Flip-flops, man. Wow. Flip-flops. <laughs> it's just, 
just like, how did he do it? How did he do it? Because we were, we were thinking, we just felt for him, like, me and Mick, Mick's a really good guy, I like him a lot. And, 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 and when we got up to the base camp, to the altitude camp, we were thinking, like, if anyone's going to slip, it's that poor sod with the helium thing. And we were waiting for him to come in, and I was waiting for him to come in. And we sat there, like, chilling, waiting for him. And it's like, you know, um, eventually he comes in just before it gets dark, and you're like, oh, so, you know, like, thank God he's here. How does that, he's, he's made it, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. Awesome respect. They, it, 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 it was, it was, an, it was incredible what they carried. And they are, the, 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 I mean, they, they, a lot of them are, end up being Gurkhas in the British Army. And my, um, my uncle fought with um, the Gurkhas at Monte Cassino. And he used to go on to me when I was a little boy about just how tough they were. He, he said, you know, you, you've never seen troops like them. They were the bravest of the brave. And those are the sort of people that, um, that, that, that they are. Awesome respect to them, and what can I say? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I was just blown away by that. Now, during the special, you mentioned something that wasn't in the the special. I presume they probably had shut the cameras off because it, it must have happened in the night. And you said that you heard an unidentified animal uh, the, the previous night. But like I said, that wasn't in the special. So I guess talk a little bit about that. The reason it wasn't in the special is because it was about, I think it was about, I have to look at my eyes, it was either three or four in the morning. Yeah. Uh, and we were, we were at altitude and I heard a really strange call. Now, I'm used to, to hearing all sorts of animals. As you know, I track all over the world. And I, when I'm not trekking for animals, I, I practice trekking. So even though last weekend I was trekking out here just to keep my skills up and to make sure. And I heard like a, a high-pitched woo sound. And Yagi Hara said he'd heard something like, like that before. And me and him stayed up the following night and the following night to try and hear that sound again. And it, it was very, very strange, but it excited me. So it was enough to really sort of make me think, you know, is there something up here? Because I'd been a little bit cynical uh, about whether something could sustain itself at that sort of level. My, my own view is that most of these yetis, when when you see the prints, what they do is they traverse the area. So they're crossing places to go from forest area to forest area. But having been up there, it's perfectly possible for, for, for short periods of time, given the fact that there are so many caves and there are so many holes for small rodents, that they could sustain themselves, for certainly for a limited period, eating the local um, flora and fauna up there. So once I knew, once I'd satisfied that in my own mind, I thought, well, yeah, there really could be something that stays here for a while rather than just crosses ravines and paths, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And then once I heard that, that really got me going. And I thought, well, maybe there's something up here right now. And again, we were like, me and Yagihara, we were like exhausted because we must have had a few hours sleep, you know, maximum each night because we were on stakeouts. So the crew had gone to bed at that stage quite rightly because they need some sleep. But, we, you know, we were out there and we were going we to go, we were going to go out there with the infrared and record it if we saw anything or we, we got it nearer to camp. But it was so, it was so far away um, and it was, it was it was a good couple of thousand feet up. It was impossible to climb up there in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah, that must have been just tantalising to hear and just sort of yeah, yeah. It's it, sort of so it's, it's a gritty teeth moment. You know what I mean? Just hoping it's going to come near, but realistically, is it going to come near a camp um, when it's up there? I don't think so. But if you were there with me, you'd be up too. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you'd be waiting. <laughs> Now, one thing that they did give a lot of uh, airtime to during the special, but thankfully you got the last word on it, which I was happy to hear and see on the show, was the, the whole um, theory that the Yeti in the Himalayas is really just a misidentified bear. And, and they even had some interesting stuff 
from one guy who told a story about a Nazi hunter who shot a bear and couldn't. Yeah. You've probably heard that story. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he yeah. shot a bear and he couldn't reveal it because the Nazis would kill him because they wanted him to find the Yeti. I guess, what's your take on the Yeti as bear theory? I, I always think there's a, there's a possibility for misidentification. But when you look at, just on a very simple fact, I'll give you one very simple fact. Before um, the, the Nepalese existed as a culture, before Buddhism, before any of the modern day religions, some of the ancient shamanistic religions referred to um, the Yeti as a real animal and described an ape-like creature. They even um, associated properties with it. So the legends of the Yeti as a, as a tangible ape-like creature go back thousands of years, long before the bear theory. And if you speak to some of the eyewitnesses who've seen it, there are people who've lived in the mountains all their lives. Not all of them are going to misidentify something as a bear. There are too many stories going back too many centuries um, that describe an ape-like creature with singular properties of a yeti, which you're well familiar with. The idea of it to be um, misidentification of a bear really is kind of like me saying to you, oh, well, that dog's a squirrel, and it must be a squirrel, because I can see loads of squirrels, but there are no dogs I can see in the vicinity. I'm drawing a very simple parallel, but you know what I mean. Um, The people there know what a bear looks like, yeah? Um, yeah. And and they've known what a bear looks like since we were Stone Age men. Don't tell me that it's a bear, man. Um, You can say somebody might have seen seen a bear, and I'm with you, but don't tell me it's a bear for centuries, because that's a bit insulting to those people, really. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Now, uh, one cool part in a sort of uh, – actually, it wasn't really cool, but it was sort of a, a revealing part, let's say, in the in the special was when you found what you thought was maybe a series of tracks, and then the mm. Sherpa guys went up and, and checked it out, but it turned out it was just uh, the effect of the snow rolling. And then they came back to tell you – this was what I was saying was the cool part, because then they mm. tell you what happened, and the look on your face and your head just sort of drops like – what a terrible disappointment. It was sort of like, mm. it was very revealing the passion that you had for what could have been a huge find. So I, I thought that was sort of like uh, a neat part of the special that they showed, they included in there. There was no words involved almost. It was just you, your reaction. It was just like, oh, shit, you know, like, well, yeah, oh, I mean, it's going to be something awesome. Yeah, I really thought we were onto something, and there's, there's a good reason why. The prints that Yagihara found um, had originally they originally speculated that they could be from a Langa monkey. So, I mean, that was a lot of speculation, which was a monkey that sort of lives a lot around that area. Now, what we very quickly established when we went up to altitude, there was no way that there was, it was going to be a monkey. Not in a million years. Monkeys don't live anywhere near there. They're thousands of feet below. And, and if it had been a monkey, it would have to be one with a limp. You know what I mean? So yeah. a limping monkey climbs four, four, four or five thousand feet up on its own past its habitat for no reason. Yeah, It's just not going to happen. Now, what happened was uh, I asked Jeff to set up a camera with a, a long-range telephoto lens by these caves and, and keep a camera there to see if anything came out of them. Now, in the morning when we came out, we saw what, from a distance on the camera, looked like tracks. So I was really excited because I thought, well, then now there could be a possibility. And obviously, as you know, it wasn't. But I think that what that, I hope it also brings across is another aspect, that anything I do is independently scientifically analyzed. So I don't go and make out wild claims, you know. I get them properly investigated, and then we report on them. So I'm not, I'm not some fantasist. If something is genuine, then I, uh, I think it's genuine. It's backed by, some, by credible scientific evidence. Then I will say so. By the same token, if something doesn't turn out to be true, I'll say so too. But I want it to happen so much 
but you know sometimes it doesn't and that's the emotion that's the role exactly yeah like i said it was a real uh it was a real revealing look at your passion into into the search so i enjoyed that quite a bit there was sort of a segment on the special talking about uh, as you guys are on the expedition with the sherpa warning you guys about the altitude sickness he sort of went through the symptoms of of the altitude sickness what i guess what's the end result of that because it was like all right dizziness you know bloated face i can kind of live with that but is it sort of the kind of thing where all right you get so dizzy you fall and then you're done yeah well people tend to the bloated face is is a sign of it and the reason it's important is because then your face slips yeah and if your face slips it's all over (laughs) it means you're like gonna hemorrhage or something so that's why he's showing that that warning sign and slurred speech as well people people because often because they want to be up there so much they ignore the warning signals and by then it's too late because it's too hard to get you down so you're dead yeah um we we took um in terms of me, did I suffer from altitude sickness? No, I didn't. I didn't really. I mean, you noticed the, the, the loss of the, the loss of breath as you get up there. Um, we had some Diamox, which is, which is a high altitude drug, which I asked them, the producer to bring. Um, that gave me some strange side effects. I, I, the bit where you saw, we, which you've just described, where we were um, looking at the snow um, and up at the altitude there, had a really, really tingling foot, and, and it just tingled, and it was, it was like pins and needles, and I actually couldn't put any weight on it at one stage. Oh, and I was, that was when I was thinking, oh, you know, how am I going to get down from here? Because not only is it technically very difficult, and I'm not one of the world's leading mountaineers like everybody else with me, but also um, um, I actually cannot stand up um, properly right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to have this very uncomfortable 10, 15 minutes of that. And also it gave you really sort of weird dreams, really intense dreams. Um, so when we did sleep for those couple of hours or whatever, um, you had the most vivid, vivid, strange, weirdy dreams. But um, I don't think I suffered personally from altitude. I think having looked at it, some people are more susceptible than others um, to altitude, and I'm not particularly susceptible, so I'm just lucky. It's not necessarily about fitness. It's just, you know, like some people are better at running than others. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. So, so it was, I'm, I'm all right, so I was lucky. Uh, on the subject of fitness, uh, just watching the thing, like I'm watching it, and I'm like, this would be cool. I think I'd like to do something like this. But then as I'm watching it more and more, I'm like, I, don't, I could not do this. Like I'm physically not even in shape to do that. It looked like you had to really – be in pretty good shape to be doing this climb up the mountain. You have to train quite hard. I mean, I'm no, I'm no athlete. I mean, you know, I want to say I'm a normal guy, and I don't want to make out I'm like some sort of Olympic Olympic athlete or whatever, because I'm not. But I do train hard. You know, like Monday night I was running, Tuesday night I was lifting weights. Before I'm speaking to you tonight, I was kickboxing because I like boxing. So I do do a lot of physical activity, yeah, and I do keep myself in shape. But again, it goes back to if you're leading an expedition. Um, you don't want to be puffing and panting at the back because you don't get anybody's respect. Yeah. So, so when I was in Sumatra, um, it's supposed to take three hours to get up the mountain. I did it in an hour and 20 minutes. And I was the first up there. I was up before the porters. Um, but then, I, you know, I've got their respect. So um, it's important that um, you don't let fitness slip. You don't have to be the fittest guy in the world to do these sort of things. But and there's all sorts of cryptozoological expeditions. So if somebody's listening to this and they're not, uh, they think, well, I'm not fit, or I've got some disability, or whatever else, and that precludes me from doing cryptozoological investigations. They say, no, there isn't. There are things like leg monsters you can go and look for, um, and other things. But the stuff I do, because um, it's quite high intensity, and I kind of, and often I've specialised in that sort of things. You do have to be fit. And if you weren't fit, you'd be a danger to me. So you wouldn't be with me. <laughs> <laughs> I 
exactly. That's why I knew I wouldn't be allowed to go. <laughs> yeah, well, 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 that's what I'm saying. You know, if 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 if, if it was a, if it was a lake monster or something like that, or it was a lowland trek, you would be allowed to go because you bring you bring stuff to it. But if you were saying to me, "Well, I want to go up a mountain with you," I'd say, "Well, Tim, get out there running." <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, if I had the opportunity, I would definitely get in shape before I went, so I wouldn't. Be yeah, that would be it. I mean, and it's common sense, really, because you're risking yourself personally, aren't you? You don't want to be. Oh yeah. I mean, and I bounce guys from expeditions if I've not think that if I've not thought they've been fit enough, even though my friends. Um, sometimes I've said, look, you man, you're not, you're not going to make it. You know, you've not done the fitness. I've given you plenty of time. I've even done fitness programs with people, and some people haven't cut the mustard, and and and, and they're out. And it has to be like that, Tim. Absolutely, yeah. Now we saw during the special. Uh the uh, the use of the thermal balloon and um, mm. and that that whole aspect of the investigation, but uh, it felt like a lot of the time uh, spent on the special was just a lot of talking about the trek up there, and we didn't mm. see too much time as far as like I didn't get an idea really of actually how long you were at the top camp and and what you sort of did day to day while you were there. So I guess uh, you know extrapolate a little bit on on what was going on there when you guys reached. Uh, your final destination as far as, uh, you know, on the way up and what you did day to day uh, looking for evidence and whatnot. Well, basically what, what we're doing, I mean, on the way up there, we're looking for tracks of any animals uh, and things like that. So we found a lot, one of the things I was encouraged um, about was I found, you know, before we got um, in the area where there was still human habitation, um, the ecosystem, I'd say, was fairly poor. There, there wasn't a lot of um, um, fruit and there wasn't a lot of animal tracks and animal life. So I was a little bit worried about what would be there beyond it. But once we got beyond human habitation, there was an abundance of, of, of flora and fauna. You know, found uh, loads of animal prints, found lots of lots of things there. So we're studying those and studying the ecosystem. As we got up at a higher altitude, I was sending my team. So you mentioned that there were 30 people on the expedition. And what they do is I wouldn't just send them out in a big line. And sometimes you probably saw that on the, on the, um, the show. I'd send them all out spread across the area to look for prints. Yeah, so you'd have 30 people looking for any evidence of animals. So, and, and you know, I, they were all over the place um, going up there. And if anybody found any tracks, you know, we'd go to them and look for them. Um, we were also studying the ecosystem and also looking for potential habitats. So I mentioned caves. Could it exist in the caves? And, and, uh, and working out what might be the optimum, optimum time. So a lot of it's tracking activity, and I'm being very quick on this, but a lot of it's uh, tracking activity, looking at the ecosystem, looking at the habitat, looking at local locations, and then going to them. And that's kind of, that's kind of what you did for the bulk of the day today. And then you talk about what you'd found and, 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 and share ideas. Okay, nice, nice, yeah. Well, the only other thing I wanted to mention about the abominable snowman, also known as the Yeti, was something that I picked up on my recent visit to uh, Lauren Coleman's museum, and that's that the Yeti up there in the Himalayas uh, is contrary to popular opinion. It seems like the mainstream or the less aware folks seem to think that it is a white Bigfoot, but it's really yeah. not. It's more gray or dark-haired. So. Uh, I, I figure you probably know this, obviously, and, and you can mm. tell people a little bit more about that because it does seem like everywhere you go, uh, when you hear Abominable Snowman, it's always drawn as like the one from the holiday cartoons yeah. Misfit Toys. Yeah. The idea of it, I mean, and that sort of takes away um, the reality of the situation because the idea of, of it being a 12-foot monster that wanders about with a bright white coat and funny eyes I mean, that's just the mythology surrounding it. Then that's a populist modern-day thing. That's that's something that's happened very recently. It's a very real ape, and it exists on 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 a mountain range that that, that probably stretches from Tibet through Nepal into Bhutan. I mean, Bhutan has its own um, 
its own national Yeti reserve. I'd love to go there and have a look. But it's a very rare, very real, very intelligent bipedal primate. Um, as you say, you've, you've given the physical description of it. Um, it's not human. It doesn't have sophisticated tool use. It certainly doesn't have fire. But, it, but it's fascinating because if we found that, I think we could learn so much from our... It's not a missing link, but we could learn so much about our own history that it's, it's an enormously scientifically important creature. And there are a number of scientists who, who think it exists. It's not... You, you move away from the 12-foot from the um, 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 Yeti creature and you move towards reputable people. Uh, and, and, you know, Sir David Attenborough... Um, who, who's well known in Britain, I think he's known in America. Mm. He's a believer in the Yeti, for example. And before I went to Sumatra, he wished me luck on my farm, you know, on the expedition. Uh, he wrote me a letter and, 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 and said so. And, and then people who, who travel there and have experienced and absorbed the local culture, culture and respect it um, do understand that it's a real creature. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Pants on the ground, pants on the ground, looking like a fool with your pants on the ground, with the gold in your mouth, hat turned sideways, pants hit the ground, call yourself a cool cat, looking like a fool, walking down town with your pants on the ground, giddy up. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Hey, get your pants off the ground, looking like a fool, walking, talking with your pants on the ground, giddy up. Hey, get your pants off the ground. Larry, what was that song called? <laughs> Pants on the ground. Are you sure? Yes. Positive? Okay. You know, I have a horrible feeling that song could be a hit. To uh, close the book, I guess, on the, on the discussion of the Himalaya expedition, mm. if you were to go back, if they were, you know, want to do a sequel or they want to, you know, go back and do a follow-up expedition, what, what sort of, would you make any changes to the trip? Would you bring anything differently? You know, uh, let's say you had a second shot at it. What, what kind of improvements or changes would you think you might make? I think I'd, I think I'd like to have a look at the um, Kumbu region. Um, forgive the pronunciation, but that's the region around Everest where there's a lot of prints and sightings around there. I'd certainly like to have a look there. If I was to go to the Himalaya area, I'd also probably have a, I'd love to go to Bhutan. The king of Bhutan has a tracker, and I'd love to go out with him. I could learn a lot from there. But in Nepal itself, it would be I'd go there. I'd probably bring some more tracking um, tracking gear. Um, I'd, if we were going to use the balloon again, I'd make sure we had uh, we had a lot of a lot of helium, a lot of the right mix of, of equipment there. Um, but I think I'd probably spend a bit more on the tracking gear, so more infrareds, more game finders, more scent-blocking clothing, things like that, and, and, and go out there into the forested areas and concentrate our efforts on those. Because I think, you know, now I know the sustainable population, I'd want to go right amongst the ecosystem. So I'd probably try a slightly different location, but in the same area, and I'd probably spend more time with the tracking stuff rather than the really high-tech gear. So I'd be a little bit more basic on that. Okay. I had one more question, actually. Oh, and loads more camera traps. (laughs) (laughs) I had one more thing here. Now, I read on Cryptomundo that there was a near death on the expedition. Is that the one you're talking about where you grab the Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's that's the the guy falling off. Potentially falling off the off the ice shelf, and it could have Tim. It could have been any one of us at any time. Oh yeah, it, it was really like that. It was it was it was touch and go, but we made it back, you know, and we parted in Kathmandu as you do. Absolutely, yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. All right. So that that kind of wraps up the the Himalayas uh, portion of your year, and then about nine months, maybe eight months to the day later, uh, you head off to Sumatra with a four man mm. team. Of guys who are pretty well known in the in the world of uh, cryptozoology. So I guess 
Um, let's set the stage first for your Sumatra expedition. How'd this come about? Who were the guys on the trip? And, uh, you know, what were you looking for? Well, basically, after I came back from the Himalayas, I sort of chewed over for a month or so, and kind of, I'm in that position now in the sense of what, what am I going to do next? And I tossed around a few ideas, and I really wanted... And because I was financing this trip myself, I was on a tighter budget, so I really wanted to go again at some point. Um, but I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. Um, as it happens, I contacted Sahar, who's my chief guy, because I've been to Sumatra five times. And he said there's been some recent sightings of the Orang Pendek the, um, up in Gunung Tuja area. And, and you know, they've, they've been quite credible. And, I, I, you know, Sahar's a decent guy. He's, he's, he's not prone to bull. And, and, and so I started to plan um, going on that expedition. And so I was thinking then, well, you know, who do I take? So I thought, well, I've been away to Russia with um, some of the guys before. And the people I invited, I invited Dave Archer because I knew he was a good tracker. Chris Clark because he's very technical and he's very level-headed as well. And, and Richard Freeman had, um, is a very able zoologist. He's got a lot of that background. So I thought they were good guys to, to, to take on the trip. So that was a lot of, there was six months planning, choosing the locations. I was cross-referencing my locations against recent sightings. And then it was, was off. And one thing I wanted to do as well was spend some time with the Kubu, the tribal people. Um, and so I arranged, before I went out, a visit with the king of the Kubu to sort of see what sightings they'd had. So there was a lot of planning before we went, and then um, and then that was it. We were off off into the jungle, and, and going off. And the first place we stopped was with the Kubu, and I met the king. It was quite cool actually. King was a lovely guy. Um, I can honestly say now that I I have been kissed by a king because the first thing he did was give us a big kiss. How many people can say that? That's pretty awesome. I was, I was really pleased with that. Um, and he told us about about sightings in his area, and he said interestingly that him and his son-in-law had been. Um, a chase by an orang pendak and, and they'd hidden from it and he was actually quite a little bit afraid of the orang pendak because at the end of the interview I had with him I said you know to my translator um, Bally I said well will he wish us luck for the hunt for the orang pendak and he said and, he, and he's a lovely guy this we got on really well and he said well you know we get on I don't want you to find it to be honest because because it might go for you <laughs> so like so that was quite a surprise uh, after we spent some time with him uh, we went up to Gunung Tuja and that was a place I wanted to go and I'm kind of you know I've not said this before but I want to go there around this time of year because I found evidence around that it was September I found evidence in September when I've not been in September I've struggled to find evidence at this particular place, at a particular location where I found prints before. So it all makes logical sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the very first um, trek we had into the jungle, which was the place where I found prints before, that was when we got the sighting. Okay, yeah, so it's almost like there might be uh, uh, maybe some kind of migratory situation going on or something like that. You're spot on. I mean, I know, without going into too much detail, because it takes a very long time to explain, but... I now know the migratory migratory habits of the Orang Pendak in that area. I know where it goes from one place to another at a particular time of year. I mean, and there are obviously more than one, but I know the migration pattern in a locale of about 10 square kilometers at that time of year because I've been there. I know where they move and where they go from one place to another. It's taken me five attempts to do it, but that, that won't surprise you because it's a very rare animal. But I know how it behaves now. I'm certain of it.
Nice, nice. So it sounds like, you know, a few more trips and it's just going to keep getting better as far as the evidence. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I had the resources, if I had, I mean, people often say this, but you know it's not, but it, it, and I'll explain why. If, if I had the resources, I could nail that now. I could nail it within, within a few months. Because with the prints, as you know, the prints I found have been analyzed by primatologists um, at Cambridge, Dr. David Chivers, and Jeff Meldrum, as you know, from America, um, who, who's, who's obviously a regular and very respected. The hairs were analyzed by Hans Brunner, the guy who did the dingo baby case, and he said they were in no primates. So, again, I'm not saying this off the top of my head. I'm saying this because there's been genuine scientific evidence by credible scientists who backed what, I, what I've said and found. Uh, on a number of occasions. And, but I know from the locales and from where they've moved, I know where it is, how it behaves and what it does. So I know all of those things. And, and, and the sighting was, you know, it was an amazing experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want me to describe that to you? Absolutely, yeah, that was the next thing I was going to ask you about because yeah. there was uh, two of the dudes on the trip saw, saw the Orang Pendek, correct? That's right. I mean, what happened was we left camp and we, we set up camp at this particular locale Well. You know, we found evidence before at this location. And just as we left camp, we found on a tree fresh claw marks from a tiger. So I knew then that there was a tiger in the area or had been recently. Mm-hmm. So we're moving our camp and we're moving our camp quite slowly because we obviously don't want to disturb the wildlife. Now as we're moving along, um, about I think it was about an hour our camp, we heard... I heard the movement of a large creature, and so I told everyone to stop, um, as you do. At that point, we split into two groups, slightly split to the left. Um, Donnie, who's one of the, guy, the guys, and, um, and myself went one way, and Sahar and Dave just went the other way, just, just, just slightly. Now, Dave and Sahar saw the tracker. Dave had an infrared game finder, and he managed to pick up the mass. Sahar goes, what's that animal? And, you know, as we came towards them, it, 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 it had frozen. And what it had done is it wrapped itself around the tree and it had frozen. Um, and then as we moved away, it, it shut off, obviously, bipedally, um, away, from, away from the area where we were and, and Ralph into the jungle. I didn't see it. I missed it by a couple of seconds. Those two were absolutely astounded. Sahar, who's a hard-nosed Sumatran tracker, burst into tears absolutely crying his eyes out with wow. the emotion of the whole thing. So uh, there's this bizarre situation where I've got my arm around this little Indonesian guy in the jungle <laughs> as he sobs his heart out <laughs> after we've just seen the, the Sumatran orang bandek. You know, how strange is that? Um, both of them describe the creature as being chimpanzee-like, as you know, there are no chimpanzees in Indonesia, um, with, with, um, with dark hair. And we found... What I think it was doing uh, the, the, uh, at that particular occasion was eating rattan. It's known to eat rattan. Found a way to achieve rattan in, 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 in uh, that place. So we disturbed it when it was feeding. I don't think it's, um, I mean, it certainly shows signs of intelligence, but it indicates to me that certainly its hearing isn't superior to ours. Its vision probably is, but it uses the jungle, so it hides and, uh, and froze. And, that. and the reports were freezing. I spoke to Jeremy Holden um, recently, who's he, done a lot of projects with Debbie Marta. And Jeremy and Debbie both think that when um, humans approach, it tries to freeze in the jungle. Debbie saw one freeze, and Dave's just seen the same thing. So um, it was there, and, and, you know, 
one of the encouraging things is on, on the other side of the lake, I found more prints this time than I've ever found before, which was a surprise to me because I expected to find less. And, you know, so we'll have to see. In terms of analysis, Todd Dissertel has been doing the analysis in America and, and some stuff's going to be done by um, a chap in Denmark too. We haven't been so far been able to pull off any DNA off the wedge, off the raton, and, and Todd's tried three times. We're still waiting to do the hair. Um, so, you know, fingers crossed for that. Now, what I can say is that the rattan was definitely found in the location. The hair was found on the other side of the lake near Orang Pendek tracks. So can I say it was definitely the Orang Pendek hair? No, I can't. I can say I can just hope to. Yeah. So I can just hope that he pulls off, pulls off DNA off that because that would be awesome. That would be like, you know, the icing on the cake because DNA... It's very difficult to argue with. Always, there'll always be somebody that'll argue with it because that's just the way people are. But but if 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 we can pull that off, that would be awesome. But it could be another animal that, that rubbed against the tree. So I have to be, I have to set the scene and be realistic, you know. But it was an amazing experience, and and you know, it's one that Dave and Sahara will remember for the rest of their lives. Sahar went down to his village because we were in the middle of Eid, the Muslim festival. So he went down to his village for a couple of days while we were up in the jungle. And we obviously carried on doing our thing. But his whole village celebrated because it was considered a massive honor to see it, see the Arangbadek. So he came back a hero. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> he came back with all this food for us, which I was glad of because I didn't want to eat them damn fish heads anymore. So <laughs> he came back with some cake, which is like ecstasy to me. God, oh, yeah. cake. So, so, but he was, yeah, so that's, that's it really. And, um, you know, one of the funniest things, can I swear to him? Yeah. You know, one of the funniest things was Dave, because he knew how much I wanted to see it. And Dave's a great guy. He knew how much I wanted to see it. And he's trying to make me feel better after we're talking to, uh, Chris and Richard afterwards. And he's like, you know, and he'd just seen it. It was his first time to Sumatra. It's his first hour in the jungle on his first day, yeah, in the, <laughs> it, properly trekking. And he sees it, yeah. And he's describing it, he's always enthusiastic. And then it dawns on him that I've stood there and I've been like five times and not seen the damn thing. And he's going to me, well, lad, you know, don't feel too bad because I didn't see its face properly. And I was like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I didn't see its face. <laughs> don't tell me you just didn't see its face and like you're making me feel bad over that. That doesn't make me feel bad, Dave. <laughs> No. Oh, man. Now, when you're in a situation like that, let's say, like, uh, you know, it was you uh, who did see it when it freezes up. Like, what's the scenario? What's the plan of action in that situation? Take a picture? I mean, you probably don't want to shoot. Picture. Yeah. Take a picture. Take a picture. Take a picture. Take a picture. Yeah. I mean, and it's really important. Jeremy Holden, who I was talking to about you before, he's one of, in my opinion, he's one of the, he's a great cryptozoologist, but he's also a fantastic photographer. He's taken... Um, prints of unknown species. He's, he's discovered unknown species. He just, because he's a modest bloke, he doesn't get all the credit for, for the work that he's done. And when he saw it, he froze. He didn't take a picture because it was so awesome. He just wanted to stare at it. Yeah? Oh, wow. He just wanted to stare at it. He didn't take a picture. Now, he, he'd probably disagree with my analysis here, but I'm going to give you my analysis. He, he spent then, I think, 10 years in the jungle trying to recreate that moment, and it didn't happen for him. And I think it really upset him, as it would, because... You, you get the, even I, I think I've pretty much nailed the Orang Pendak in terms of how it behaves and everything else. I'm, I'm, I'm confident to say that I didn't, didn't interview to you, but you know, I, part of me thinks, well, if I went there and I went there for an extended period of time, I could be there ten years and it just not happen for me. Yeah. So I, I just want to, if I see it, if I see it, no matter what the 
no matter what the situation, I will, you know, I'd want to take a picture of it. I would. And, 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 you know, in that situation with Dave, I, I think, you know, he couldn't have taken a picture because he only got a, a couple of seconds. It would have been too hard. So I'm, in, in no way I'm, in, I'm implying anything other than, than he did exactly what I would have done in that situation. But if you're asking me the question, what would I do if I saw it? It's just take a picture, Tim. Okay. Just take the best picture you can. Now, you said uh, when when uh, Sahara went back down, it was tried that he was like a hero for having seen it and stuff. That yeah. kind of raises an interesting question. Um, let's say you were out there and you actually shot one and killed it. Would you, were you, are you in, like, big trouble then, pretty much, with, with the people of uh, Sumatra? Because, you know, they probably hold this thing in pretty high regard. I mean, are they? Are we talking about execution here for killing the Orang Pendek, or would they be happy or what? Would you come visit me in prison? Have I had fish heads for 30 years? <laughs> a Sumatran prison, no less. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wouldn't kill one, man. I just wouldn't. I, I, I mean, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't ever do it. Um, it. It's a question, I think, that I've pondered very seriously in the field because, as you know, I've been very close to, to a number of these cryptids. For example, Selyord, when I, you know, I did see the Selyord serpent in, in Norway. Um, and, and, you know, I would have jumped on its back and ridden it at that moment. I was Captain Ahab, you know, I was. But would I have killed it? No. So I have, I've been in the situation where I've seen a cryptid and I've been amazingly excited by it. Um, if I had the potential to have harmed it, um, it might have given me um, some sort of worldwide fame or whatever. But would I would have sacrificed that for... Um, not killing something. Yeah, if I live to be 10,000, I'm just not going to kill them. Yeah, never. yeah. But Take like, a picture, get evidence, I'm never going to shoot anything. Okay, but now we know you wouldn't do that, but let's say some nutcase or some other person in there who has less moral <laughs> quandaries, to, but would they get in serious trouble, you think? Or? Yeah, man, yeah, yeah, totally they would. Totally they would. If you were to go out there and, and shoot one, don't expect to come home wearing the same clothes you're in, um, expect to come home wearing goat skin that you've been wearing for the last 20 years. Oh, man. You, <laughs> you just, you just, only, only a dick would shoot one. Only a dick would shoot one anyway, but only a dick would shoot one knowing the consequences. Yeah, yeah. It does sound like it would be the kind of situation where you'd be fucked if you uh, yeah, killed one of those things. So Absolutely. We're not talking about the Pacific Northwest of America where you might no. be able to get away with it in some parts of the area. This is like a whole foreign country where these things are revered, so it's like... Like, you know, you're in deep trouble whether you wanted to prove its existence or not. It's like they don't care, I don't think. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I mean, you know, if an Indonesian had shot one, I don't think he would possibly be in trouble. I mean, because one of the rangers um, had seen one. I mean, it's an interesting question, Tim. One of the rangers, I mean, you're making me think about it. One of the rangers um, didn't believe in the Orang Pendak for, for, for a number of years, and then he saw one. And he was having a dilemma about whether he should shoot it or not. And, and he decided against it because it looked, it, it, it freaked him out because it was too human-like. But I think if he shot it, would, would he have got, would he have, would he have, would he have got into trouble with him? Probably not. But if I had shot it, yeah, I probably would have done. But it, it, it's speculation. I'm not going to go down that path. So. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so so you know, um, and I hope no one ever shoots it. I hope the way it's discovered is the way I, I try to, to to discover it. You know, I think we're push, I'm pushing the fold on it now. There's a number of scientists who've now come out of the closet and said, well, you know, it's a real animal. And um, certainly with the orang pandak, it's, it's no longer, um, I think, you know, from my own point of view, to maybe maybe 10 years ago, it was it was a fringe thing. Loads, loads of people now publicly, even respected people, 
and regularly consider it as a real animal now. It's moved on from that. It's moved on from, from the fanciful, is it a bullshit 12-foot monster thing to, yeah, it's a real creature, it's only a matter of time. And hopefully it is. Hopefully it will be, you know, we, 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 I've done enough or other people will do enough to, to do it before um, the bloody habitat gets wiped out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, before we, like, you know, because people want extra bars of soap or, and uh, there's, a, there's more palm oil plantations built. The Indonesians are working hard. I mean, they're, they're, I'm not dissing them. There is a national park, but, you know, it's, it's, it's simple pressure in that village um, near Sahars. Um, you know, I mean, there are dedicated rangers. I don't want you to think that, that, that there's not. But, you know, Sahar has three or four kids, yeah? They're farmers. Farmers' sons need, far, need land, you know what I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very difficult situation, and I really do believe, because people say, well, you know, why don't you, you know, the best thing maybe to do with something like this is to leave it alone. That's not an option for the, for the orang pandak. If, you, if, you, if it isn't found and isn't scientifically proved, its habitat will just be destroyed, and it won't have anywhere to roam around. So it's not a question of leaving it alone. If you, if you, don't, if you leave it alone, it's doomed. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, maybe some end up in a zoo somewhere because they wiped out all the habitat and found them there. Uh, yeah, maybe. Remember, they'd be the lucky ones. It'd be like the Tasmanian tiger. It'd be like one of those sorrowful pictures of it walking around a cage before it goes extinct. Exactly, yeah. Sod that, you know. Now, it did seem like you guys got some good press coverage in the U.K. when you came back because I saw some of the, uh, I think it was the U.K. Sun did a, a big piece on, you know, the results of your expedition. So that's pretty good to uh, get that kind of stuff, and I'm sure it helps with funding down the line. Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, Tim, I'd love to do this for a living full time, but my last trip was, was I funded myself. You know, uh, if I could in my dream scenario, I'd, I'd go out and make a series of these things and I'd go out looking for them full time for a living. I just love to do it. And, I, and now because I've got so much experience uh, of doing it all over the world, um, you know, I know I, I can make a difference. So that's my dream scenario. But that's not happened so far. Maybe it will one day. But even if it doesn't, I'm going to keep plowing on. And, you know, over the next month or two, I'm going to sit there thinking about what I want to do next. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Now, I know when you came back from the trip, you uh, had to get rushed to the hospital with some kind yeah, of mystery God. illness. What was, uh, what's the story behind all that? Yeah, well, I, I felt like shit, basically, <laughs> um, for, 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 for a bit. And um, it just got worse and worse. And I went out, and I went out hiking near me in the, place, in the Peak District, which is near where I live. And I was out um, hiking with my dad, and we were talking about the expedition. I'd had the shit, for want of a better word, for days, and it was just getting worse and worse. And I was due to go down, I live in Manchester, I was due to go down to London um, for three or four days traveling. And I just, uh, you know, I just could not stop going. And um, I said to my dad, I said, I'm going to have to get something. So I went to hospital, to casualty, to get something. And uh, the nurses, the Asian man, man, sort of northern thing, they took one look at me. said, where have you been? Oh, I've been in the jungle, Sumatra. I said, right, okay. Took my blood pressure. They said, you're dehydrated. You've got high blood pressure. Um, you're staying here. Um, and that was it, yeah? My, they did it really quickly because I've not been in hospital for years. One minute I was in my trekking gear. The next minute I had a drip in my arm and I was whisked off and they diagnosed I got some dysentery thing. I was in isolation. In a, in, a, in a room on my own, and that was it. Oh, <laughs> it all happened really quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, reality had not dawned on me for some time, I have to say, Tim, because I was there with this dripping arm, and this very pretty 25-year-old nurse um, comes in, and I'm busy trying, you know, chatting her up and flirting with her, <laughs> and then, and, you know, just doing my thing. And, and then I, I had to use this commode, yeah, and I was puking in it. 
and then she comes back in uh, and, I, and I sort of hide, head, you know, sort of moved away from the dip. And I realized very quickly that the same girl I'd been flirting with was the same one that was just about to clean out my sick. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. So it was all over, Tim. You know, that flirt was over. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, so I was in hospital for a while. But I'm, I was good after a bit of antibiotic and pumping up. I was a bit, I was, I was, I was, I, was, I mean, it's fair to say that I was pretty ill and, um, you know, I had, at one stage, bizarrely, I had two trips in my arm. What was that all about? But I was all right after a while. These things happen, you know. I have to be prepared to, to, to you know, if I go in the field, you know, these are, these are things are going to happen. I was speaking to Jeremy afterwards. He says, oh, Jeremy, I've got, you know, the guy I was talking about. Jeremy, I've just had dysentery, and he's like, oh, yeah, man, he was in, he was in Cambodia. He's like, I've just recovered from typhoid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With these sort of people doing these sort of things, what can I say? Now, was that the kind of thing that was a result of your reacclimation to the UK, or is that something that could have uh, afflicted you while you were on the trip? Oh, no, it was something I got while I was on the trip, uh, but it, it just took a while to kick in. I mean, it got worse, yeah, so I had the shits a bit when I got back, I had the shits a bit in Singapore, and then they got worse, and, and then I was puking up. It was just, a, it was, it, 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 was just a, it, it was one of those things that takes a, a while to kick in, but... You know, um, with some ultra strong um, antibiotics, it, it was it was cured. It wasn't. I didn't have a very pleasant stay in, in hospital, but um, I'm alive and I'm still I'm out. You know. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it as a result. Uh, you know, when you go to these things, I, my, I always worry that somebody on the trip is going to get sick at some point. But my biggest fear out there, quite honestly, was a broken ankle because that could have caused me. One of the team could have caused me real problems or something like that. If beforehand you told me that the worst you were going to happen, especially as an earthquake hit just a couple of days after we left, was um, I was going to be ill with dysentery, I would have taken that as a result. Yeah, well, with the avalanche you avoided in uh, the Himalayas and then the earthquake in Sumatra, you're like dodging bullets left and right here. <laughs> yeah, no, and I've been, in, I've been in an earthquake in Sumatra before, which was really serious, which was in my book. In fact, Patrick, uh, who's my publisher, he sent me an email the other day and he said, uh, well done, Adam. See, so you dodged death yet again. <laughs> and, ja and Jared, he's, he's one of the producers on the Monster Crush show, he says, Adam, man, you're teasing the devil. You're teasing the devil. Go somewhere quiet. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, I also uh, saw that you guys were looking for some horned snakes or golden cats as well while you were in Sumatra. Did you do much investigation into those uh, other mm -hmm. sort of... I have uh, to say, creatures? yeah, we asked a few questions about those, but because we got, we were so on the ball with the with the orang pendek and it was so hot yeah we, i mean we, we were picking up tracks i mean i picked up tracks on the other side of the lake i picked up prints and we and, and you know there were so many sightings we just focused on that primarily yeah i mean the, 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 it's not to say that those things don't have value but you know when you're that close someone's seen well two people have seen the orang pendek when you're out there that's your time, you know, exactly, man. Exactly, yeah. That, that's yeah. It. You just maxed out on that, really. Yeah, that takes priority because you're close. Yeah, totally. It takes priority. I mean, there are golden cats about. I mean, they're, they're quite... There, there are a number of golden cats at low altitude and higher altitude. There's marble cats, so they differentiate. But the snakes and, uh, and that, while I am interested in them, I'm there for your own pendant, many times. And uh, one other animal I wanted to mention, actually, that... Uh, we had talked about last year when we did the interview. It seems like it's really becoming kind of really uh, popular. I saw a lot of stories about it since we did the interview last year, and that's the Mongolian death worm. Mm, it's yeah, really yeah. picked up in popularity, it seems, in the last year or so. Yeah. Well, a couple of guys from New Zealand um, contacted me saying that they'd like to go out, and, I'll, and they'd read my book. Um, and I put them in touch with uh, uh, Bill Gay uh, Biamba, who, who um, 
help me organize things in Mongolia. So I, I hope I, I kind of made it easier for them because before I went out, I spent a year researching that, you know, to get to the point where before I went out, so they piggybacked off my research, which I'm totally cool with, which I want to happen. And I love sharing information on these things. And they went out there and, and um, obviously they've done their own investigations. I think they're making a film that they're going to release. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to blow their stack by saying what they did or didn't find, but I, I think they had a, a, a really great expedition and they enjoyed themselves enormously. Uh, it just goes to show that there are a number of cryptids um, still out there, still um, still waiting to uh, to be discovered, and, and, it, and it's just a fantastic subject. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm sure you're probably in your downtime now since the Sumatra trip, but what do you uh, have on the agenda? Like when we talked last year, did you have any idea that these two trips would even come about? No, no, yeah. I, I hadn't. I hadn't. I hadn't planned them. I always have um, a few things that I potentially have on the go or ideas, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, sometimes a curveball will come in and change all of that, and sometimes it will happen. So, you know, as I, as, as, as I sit here um, tonight, what am I thinking about? Well, I'm thinking, you know, I'd like to have a go at, at, at Sasquatch sometime. I'd never look, hunt, look for a cryptid in North America. And maybe I can bring a different angle to to the party, and that's with respect to all the researchers who who did good work out in in, in America. Maybe India. Um, there's Bigfoot legends there. I'm interested in Chinese lake monsters, and maybe a trip back to the Himalayas to Bhutan. But those are ideas right now. I haven't decided yet, Tim. Yeah. I haven't decided. It's too soon after Sumatra. I think I'll probably start getting an idea around about Christmas-ish and then see which way I want to go. I haven't decided yet. I'm just at the moment writing on my Sumatra notes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, and I haven't even looked at all the photographs I've, I've got back from here yet because I've, I've, I've had to do work damn hard on my day job, as you know, after I come back. Yeah. Uh, I do, I do, I do, I do it in my spare time, unfortunately. I have to earn a living. So, um, so no, I don't know yet. But definitely something. You know me. I'll definitely do something. It just depends. It it depends, and, and you know, and it's always a question of money. So if I get a film, I'll definitely do one of those if it's somewhere I want to go, and then I'll probably finance one myself if I can afford it. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, based on the success of the Sumatra trip and 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 your confidence in in uh, getting closer and closer to this, I I hope Monster Quest steps up to the plate and. Uh, Maybe uh, puts up some money to send you back down there next September to. to... No, you're not going to make me go back to Sumatra. I'm not going to eat them fish heads again. I'm like, <laughs> oh no, no, no. <laughs> oh, oh, please. Oh god. Well, maybe, maybe that and somewhere else. Yeah. Don't make me go back there. Just that. I don't want that to be my trip out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Well, once once this once the illness is further from your memory, I think yeah. your, your mind will change. <laughs> yeah, Especially yeah, it, it, well, it always does, doesn't it? More, you know, moth the flame, been there five times. I said last time, you know, I said last time I, I left there in 2007. I thought, I thought, I said to myself, shit, I'm never coming here again. I'm never doing it again. What did I do? 2009, back there again. I'm sure I'll go back there again at some point. It's just inevitable, isn't it? It's just going to happen. But I want to do other things too. Yeah. I'm not going to just go there again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that now and I'm saying it publicly so that I can remind myself of it when I listen back to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now, I checked my site here last year for when we did the interview, and you didn't have mm. a website up yet. Do you have anything mm. uh, that we could direct people to to check out more information about you? Yeah, yeah, I have a blog now, and if I, if you if you tap in my name, it's Adam Davis, as you know, D A V I E S, 
um, extreme expeditions, they can find my blog. Um, and so they, uh, if you go into the journal section, you can see what I'm up to and what my thoughts are. So people can see that and um, and see where I am and what I'm planning, etc. And I kind of write it as I see it. So um, at the moment, it's sort of I'm chewing over what's been happening and, and, and what's been happening in my life and stuff. So um, I kind of write it about once a week and update stuff. Um, it's not strictly all about cryptozoology. It'll be about what I'm thinking and, and, and all of that. But I think that's useful because I think you see the motivations behind the people who do these things. So, so yeah, go and have a look at that. It's a work in progress, and people can can find out what I'm up to there. And and you know, and if and if anybody wanted to contact me, they could contact me through that or through Patrick at Anomalous Books. Absolutely, yeah. I'm punching it in now to see if I can find the URL for that. Let me see. Okay, it's extremeexpeditions.com, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if you have a look there, if you go into the journal section, yeah. have a look at have a look at the journal section when, after we spoke because it will make you laugh. Oh, absolutely. I wish I could. <laughs> have, a, have a read of it. Then. seen this before we uh, <laughs> did the interview. That'll give us something to talk about next time around. <laughs> yeah, no, have a look. It'll make you laugh, I promise uh, you. Because okay. it's just what I've been doing, doing over the last couple of weeks since I came back from Sumatra. So you'll get an idea of, of the motivations that go behind when I plan the next trip. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'll be a good look at the planning. And when stages. I come to America, you and me, a beer, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You let me know when you're coming to America, and I'll be waiting with the beers. Good stuff. Well, I hope so. I mean, I'll, 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 I'm sure it'll happen sooner rather than later. You know. I hope I have so. A good feeling about it. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so because uh, there's so much to look for here in America, not just the Bigfoot, but also you know, well, there's all these different strains of oh, yeah. potential Bigfoot. Oh yeah, there's like the, there's those, there's a skunk ape. I was reading re- reading about a creature potentially in Florida as well as a skunk ape uh, yep. today as well. There's loads of things in America. And I want to go and see the uh, museum. I want to see the Lawrence Museum at some point. I bet that'd be cool. Oh, yeah, you'd love it. And uh, like mm. I was telling you in the email, um, they have uh, Lauren Howe's uh, print of, I think it was uh, the 2001 trip mm. Uh, mm. of the Orang Pendax. So folks who mm. are listening in the New England area or are going to make the trip up to uh, Lauren's Museum in Maine can actually you know, handle a copy of the Orang Pendak print that you picked up in, in Sumatra, which was really cool because, you know, I had talked to you. I know you pretty well. And mm. to uh, go into the museum and there uh, amongst the displays and stuff is uh, Adam Davies' Orang Pendak print from 2001. And it was like, wow, this is cool because, you know, I talked to you already before. Mm. So it was pretty neat. Yeah, and Lauren had the original, so he made a cast from the original. It's not some copy off the internet or whatever. It's an original cast from, from the one that I had. Yeah, and it's very, very cool. And uh, the URL for your for your website there is extreme-expeditions.com. Folks should definitely check that out. I think that's about it. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, that's cool. Just just one thing. Um, I saw one of your bloggers is called Leslie. Yes. Yeah. She's, she, that's a nice picture of her. She looks hot if you tell her that. Oh, boy. All right. I'll make sure. <laughs> I'll make sure to mention. It's her birthday today, actually. So. It's her birthday. Happy birthday, Leslie, if she's listening. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll make sure to pass along word to Leslie that you uh, <laughs> that you had that to say. Well, Adam, it was great catching up with you. It was awesome to have you back on the show. And um, well, when we had first done the interview last year, uh, I hadn't had the chance to see the previous Monster Quest episodes that you'd done. And I have seen them since, obviously. And I saw the the recent two-hour Monster Quest finale there where you were the expedition leader into the Himalayas and it's just a really amazing look at what goes into these trips and like I said last year I mean it just just a stunning level of guts that you have to, to, to 
brave the elements in a lot of these places. I don't know if I'd even have the balls to do some of these trips. So uh, my hat's off to you for that. And it was great, you know, getting a chance to talk to you. I really appreciate that you want to come back on the program here and update folks as to what you've been up to and really give them an amazing inside look and firsthand look at these expeditions. Because uh, for a lot of folks, they just see they just either see them on Monster Quest or read about them. Uh, at the various cryptozoology blogs and stuff and don't get an opportunity to, uh, you know, hear what goes on behind the scenes and hear, you know, the pluses and the minuses and the fears and the concerns and the and the joys of these trips. So, I mean, you really provide an amazing insight to the awesome BOA Audio listeners. So I'm sure they appreciate it as much as I do. And it's been great catching up with you, and we'll definitely have you back on the show again to talk about even more of your expeditions. Brilliant, and it's been a pleasure, as it always is. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Adam Davies for coming on the show and providing such perspective on those really remarkable expeditions of 2009. I'm looking forward to seeing what he has up his sleeve for 2010. You can find out more from Adam at the website, www.extremeexpeditions.com. There's a hyphen in there, so don't go crazy yet, my friends. It's extreme-expeditions.com. Check it out. Normally here we would do BOA Audio listener feedback, but I am so bedraggled over this audio issue that we're going to askew the BOA Audio listener feedback until hopefully next week when I have the old equipment up and running again or the week after that at the very latest You have no idea, my friends, how annoyed I am about this turn of events. I'm such a clown shoe. I can't believe I spilled Coke on the recorder that we used for so long. In a way, it's kind of a testament to the machine that it lasted five years, but at the same time, it left us in a big bind when it went down on Friday afternoon and has really thrown things into a state of chaos here at BOAHQ, but... We persevere, and for those folks who have long requested that we look into a new method of recording, I can assure you that this disaster has really given me pause and made me think about what we need to do here to get the BOA Audio franchise into the year 2010 as far as recording equipment goes, because when... Our old school recorder went down on Friday. I went to get a new one, and they don't even make the old recorder that we used. And clearly, from my limited experience here with this new recorder, it is not made for BOA audio. It is not designed for the style of recording that we do via the phone and even via the voiceovers. As you can tell, I'm sounding like I'm coming at you from inside a cave or I'm wearing some kind of scarf across my mouth. It's it's awful. And I don't have the time to figure out how to get things back exactly as they were using this new recorder. That's kind of the other issue at hand, really, when you think about it. Because the recorder goes down on Friday and we already have interviews scheduled to be taped. We have episode voiceovers to tape. There's really a very limited amount of time that I have on my hands to start investigating Skype, start investigating new audio software programs. I will say that we have a hiatus scheduled for BOA Audio, but not for at least another six weeks. And once I have that downtime, I am going to do a serious 
thorough and intense investigation of audio recording styles until we can find one that works best with BOA audio. So hopefully by the time we wrap up Season 5, we'll have dragged the program into 2010 and beyond. As I said, we're going to try and resume BOA Audio listener feedback next week on the program, provided that we get the equipment back. Until then, though, of course, I want to hear from all you great folks out there. There's a variety of ways to get in touch with me. You can go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button, or you just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the final way is the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E. U-S-O-F-E dot com. So those are the three methods, contact button, email, and the official BOA forum, the U-S of E dot com. Get in touch with me, shoot me your emails, critiques, positive stuff, negative stuff. I can take it. I'm always interested in hearing what's on the minds of the BOA audio listeners. Up next, it's time to thank the outstanding BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. At BOA, since the last time you've heard from me, the return of A.M. Murphy with her column, Not Always So, this time around titled Anya is a Channel, talking all about Anya Briggs, who is a channel. And it's a fascinating look at someone who is right on the precipice of potentially some serious esoteric stuff. So check out Anya is a channel via A.M. Murphy's Not Always So. Following that, we got another outstanding piece from Regan Lee in her column Trickster's Realm, this time around titled Women from Venus, talking about the contactees and more specifically the Venusian connection to contactees. Really thought-provoking stuff from Regan Lee, as always. Trickster's Realm, Women from Venus, that's at BOA right now. And finally, Leslie's Grey Matters, simply titled 2010, a look at the year so far. It's been a strange year, not just in esoterica, but in pop culture, as well as in Leslie's world. And she talks about all three of those aspects to 2010 in her latest edition of Grey Matters, titled, quite simply, 2010. That's at Banal of America right now as well. And we've got a shadow of the Shinigami from Marla Pena waiting in the wings to be posted at BOA on Friday. So come on back and check out Shadow of the Shinigami, all new at Banal of America on Friday. We say it week in and week out, but it is the truth, my friends. And 2010 so far has definitely borne that out. The BOA staff are putting out top-notch material day in and day out for your reading pleasure. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Usually this is the part of the show where we ask you to make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. But truth be told, in light of the devastating earthquake in Haiti. I feel kind of bad asking for people to make donations to my little rinky-dink podcast. So I just want to encourage everybody to make a donation to the Red Cross or one of the many charities that are helping out the poor people of Haiti who have been afflicted by this hellish earthquake. 
I've just been riveted by the coverage of the devastation over there in Haiti. My heart goes out to all those folks. And as I said, I just wouldn't feel right asking people to make donations to Banal of America and BOA Audio when their donations really could be better served helping out folks over there in Haiti. So make a donation to a charitable organization. I would appreciate it. Obviously, the people of Haiti would appreciate it as well. I'll get back to begging you for your money in a future edition of BOA Audio, I promise. Next week on the program, we welcome back a longtime friend of the show and really one of the nicest, most generous, and gregarious people in all of UFO studies. I like to call him Ufology's best kept secret because he's doing some amazing work behind the scenes in the world of ufology and doesn't get as much credit as he deserves and, in my opinion, is one of the great thinkers in the field of UFO studies. I'm talking about co-author of Left at East Gate, Peter Robbins. I sat down with Peter earlier this week for a discussion on his paper, Politics, Religion and Human Nature, Practical Problems and Roadblocks on the Path Toward Official UFO Acknowledgement. He presented the paper this past summer at the MUFON International Symposium, and it is some thought-provoking stuff, and I had the pleasure of hosting Peter at my home here for the Mass Mystery Weekend. We talked in depth about this paper when he was here and planned for this interview, which you'll be hearing next week on the show. And the cool part about this is that if you go to Banal America right now, either the show page or the homepage where it says next week, you can download a copy of this paper in preparation for next week's edition of the show. Peter has generously allowed us to host it at BOA, post it at Banal America, and allow folks to download the 25-page PDF paper, Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, Practical Problems and Roadblocks on the Path Toward Official UFO Acknowledgement. He really takes a thoughtful look at UFO disclosure and highlights some of the problems related to a potential disclosure event that you just don't hear from a lot of folks in the exopolitical slash disclosure movement. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this interview was taped with this nefarious recording equipment in a way it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me and made me say we got to make a change here on this because things aren't working out right i haven't sat down to edit the interview i'm fairly confident that it is decent and you'll be able to listen to it just fine but it probably will be slightly different in sound quality from our normal boa audio episodes much like the voiceovers have been here for this week's episode though not as deep that's a whole different issue. This thing's driving me mad, folks. It's driving me bonkers, but hopefully we'll be all set soon. Nonetheless, you can grab a copy of the PDF paper from Peter Robbins, Politics, Religion, and Human Nature, Practical Problems and Roadblocks on the Path Towards Official UFO Acknowledgement at BOA right now. Read that this week in preparation for Peter's appearance on the program to be posted sometime midweek at BOA. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big thanks once again to Adam Davies for coming back on the show. And most of all, big thanks to the outstanding BOA listeners. Hopefully you haven't been driven crazy like I have by this different sound of the program. Once again, as I noted, just a temporary thing. Cross your fingers. 
be patient. We'll be back up and running at full speed in no time flat. Nonetheless, I want to thank you for your patience and support of the program. The BOA Audio listeners are the best. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.